From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, progressive myopia and national intervention. That ought to be homeopathic, that ought to be effectively a zero control, and it turned out to be as effective over the initial two years of drug treatment. First this. Imagine a library of 100,000 books in subjects that interest you and subjects that don't. The books of this library are arranged, bizarrely, by publisher and date of publication. How useful would such a library be to you? How soon would you give up on trying to find a book that really interested you? ASCRS's impressive online content has been a little like that library until now. The new ASCRS Center for Learning at ASCRS.org slash learn organizes the vast and growing ASCRS online content, podcasts, and CME offerings into a unified, searchable whole so that we can find the material we want in the format that best suits us. Go to ASCRS.org and click on Center for Learning or go directly to ASCRS.org slash learn. We can define a public health problem as a pathology that affects a population for which it is possible to intervene with treatment, prevention, or both. Myopia seems to fall outside the bounds of this definition until recently. Rates of myopia have been increasing, and genetically identical populations in different environments can have very different rates of progressive myopia. This suggests environmental influence, and therefore, environmental modification may be of value in curbing what is becoming an epidemic of progressive myopia. More recently, medical therapies have been introduced to treat progressive myopia. It is to the great credit of a number of East Asian nations that progressive myopia has been recognized as a public health problem and that interventions are being instituted. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Ian Morgan, an expert in this field. Myopia, a problem in the West, has been recognized as a public health problem in several Far Eastern countries, notably Singapore, for the risk of pathological myopic changes. How prevalent is myopia in Southeast Asia? Well, it's very prevalent. The situation these days is that in uh, the developed economies, so uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, mainland China, and Hong Kong, roughly 80 to 90% of kids completing secondary school are myopic. This is a staggering figure. I think the the record is uh, 96.5% of uh, 19-year-olds in uh, Seoul in South Korea. That's incredible. That's an incredible number. It really is incredible. I actually didn't think it could get that high. I might just say um, Singapore has certainly been very active in this uh, area, but I think the people who are leading the way and actually have been leading the way all along are the Taiwanese. Uh, They started doing nationwide uh, screening for myopia 
with uh, cycloplegia uh, back in the early 1980s. Uh, they saw it as a military necessity because there was a danger of uh, invasion from the mainland at that time and the president of Taiwan was convinced it was a national security issue and funding flowed as a result. It if the high incidence of myopia in this population were entirely genetic, one would expect a similar prevalence in the past. How does the current prevalence of myopia compare to the prevalence, let's say, half, half a century ago? Well, it's hard to say because, of course, people were not doing uh, population surveys of children with cycloplegia back in those days. So it is a little bit hard to... Uh, compare but I think we have enough information to say that allowing for hyperopic shifts in adult life, uh, lack of cycloplegia, the prevalence of myopia say 50 years ago in all these countries where it's uh, in school leavers is now um, uh, 80 to 90 percent. The prevalence in a comparable group about 50 years ago would have been 20 to 30 percent. So a big change. When I think of countries with high prevalences of, of myopia, Australia does not immediately come to mind. Have the rates of myopia been changing in your country? Well, they have slightly. The latest figure we have on that from the uh, Sydney Myopia study is that in uh, 17-year-olds, so roughly children of the age completing high school, uh, the prevalence of myopia is 17%, exactly the same as their age. Uh, it has gone up a little bit. The best data we can use for this, we can compare 12-year-olds five years apart. And over that five-year period, it looks as though the prevalence of myopia has doubled. But... The prevalence of myopia in Australian children of European ancestry uh, is now about 8%. It used to be about 4%. Statistically significant increase, but uh, still not a big problem. A number of interventions have been attempted to slow the progression of myopia in children. Perhaps the most important of these are the ADAM and ADAM2 studies. Can I get you to describe the initial ADAM study and its findings? Well, the initial ATOM study was a uh, uh, not quite a randomised uh, uh, control because, of course, you have to uh, let uh, children opt in or parents of children opt in to the various uh, interventions, but as well controlled as you can manage in these situations. And they used 1% atropine and they followed the children for two years and then gave them a... Uh, a one year off the drug. Now, the, there was no doubt from their data that atropine was effective in slowing progression, but the concerning part of their result was that when they uh, uh, gave the drug-free year, then the children who'd been on atropine progressed faster over that year, quite a bit faster than uh, those who hadn't had atropine. And as a result, you lost uh, a good deal of the protective effect. So once more, the ADAMS study, and, and that stands for atropine treatment of 
myopia, myopia. Yeah, yeah looked at the um application of of one percent atropine drops versus controls and yeah. my my recollection uh from from that study is is that it showed a decreasing um a decreasing degree of progression of myopia in in the treated group and then during the one year washout period the acceleration of myopia was higher in the treated group than in the non-treated group but even right. so yep. even so the the treated group never reached the same degree of myopia as those who had never received treatment in the in the first place that that's right but the source of concern about that result is that uh, uh why are the children who had previous treatment with atropine progressing faster that, that than rebound. the other group. That's the, what they call the rebound effect. Uh, and so they moved on to the ATOM-2. And the ATOM-2 study was essentially the same design, but they used different doses of uh, atropine, low, lower doses. So I think, that, I think they used 0.5%. 0.1% and 0.01%. And the 0.01% was actually meant to be a control group, but it turned out to be uh, more effective than the higher doses of atropine. So the the the, the group that the study had, had chosen as a, a control, what they thought was going to be essentially a homeopathic dose of Atropine turned 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 out to be turned turned out to receive benefit too. The 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 upside of that was that the Adam two study demonstrated an efficacy of the point zero one percent. The the downside is that they actually wound up with no real control group. Well, that's that's right. I think that was uh, yeah yeah. They made a reasoned guess if we drop the concentration by. Uh, a hundredfold from 1% to uh, uh, 0.01%. Uh, that ought to be homeopathic. That ought to be a, effectively a zero control. And it turned out to be uh, as effective over the initial two years of drug treatment. Uh, there are marginal differences between the concentrations, but really essentially as effective, almost complete block, but the thing that was different was that when they gave them the drug for a year, you didn't see the rebound effect that you saw with the higher doses of atropine. So during that, that one-year washout period, they didn't demonstrate the same sort of acceleration of progression of myopia as the 1% group had uh, in the initial Adams study. That's right, and, 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 and so the end result was the most effective treatment after that three-year period, two years on atropine, one year with, without atropine. Uh, the most effective treatment was 0.01%. Because I think the most compelling thing about that result is, that, is the fact that you don't see the rebound effect that you see with the higher doses. And this suggests to me, although the evidence is clearly not in, is that uh, we should forget about 1% uh, atropine as the uh, frontline prevention treatment. It looks to destabilize the uh, 
eye growth control system in some way and lead to this rebounding effect, rebound effect. Why don't we move to uh, 0.01%? Now, Ian, the the Adams study was not the first time that atropine was introduced as a therapy for progressive myopia in children. And you mentioned that Taiwan has been a a a leader in the identification and and management of myopia in in children. Was atropine used in Taiwan prior to the Adams study? Oh yes, yeah. The uh, uh, the Taiwanese were yeah well ahead of anyone else in terms of implementation of atropine. Uh, they have a very comprehensive school vision uh, screening system. Uh, any child who became uh, myopic was referred to an ophthalmologist, and the expectation was that they would come back uh, having been. Uh, uh, prescribed atropine, and so the recent figures suggest that as much as yeah forty percent of uh, the uh, uh, population of children in Taiwan have actually had atropine. Yeah, a huge at number at some stage in their life. Just to be clear, is the effect of atropine on slowing the growth of the axial length of the eye or flattening the the cornea? Uh, de- definitely the. Uh, the uh, posterior eye, the vitreous chamber, is where the growth is blocked. It has no effect on the uh, cornea. How safe is topical atropine treatment in in children? Well, I think that's the remaining question, obviously. The side effects, the immediate side effects, are um, um, much less. So in the original ATOM trial, they needed to provide the children with uh, uh, photochromic glasses. They needed to give them reading glasses because the pupil was dilated and accommodation was blocked for a significant period of time. Uh, With these lower doses, while there is some effect on accommodation and uh, some effect on uh, pupil dilation, the they found in the ATOM trial, that, or the ATOM-2 trial, that uh, even when they made uh, yeah, sunglasses and uh, reading glasses optional, the kids didn't feel the need for them. The issue, of course, with any of these um, uh, treatments is long-term safety. Now, the concern about 1% atropine is, um, uh, well... Uh, if it's destabilised the growth control mechanism and you're getting this rebound effect, how long will it take uh, for that destabilisation to sort itself out? The answer is that uh, we don't know. We probably should know because Taiwan's got extensive experience with this sort of treatment and in Singapore they have the first atom trial. And But we don't have a good long-term follow-up on uh, those children to say, does re- refraction stabilise or refractive change stabilise uh, later on? Uh, so that's the, the, the issue all along. Uh, obviously, uh, putting 
atropine in the eyes is uh, more invasive than, say, wearing uh, uh, a set of spectacles. Uh, so you do have to uh, ask yeah, the, the question, and it can't be resolved yet. We've got to follow these children up. What are the long-term effects? The fact that there's no rebound effect with the... Uh, with the 0.01% does suggest that the long-term prospects are better, definitely better than with 1%. In the absence of a, a, a substantial effect on accommodation, how do you think atropine affects the growth in axial length? Okay, well, I think that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, the a animal studies which have have been done. Although the the original idea was, of course, yeah, uh, accommodation drives axial elongation. Block accommodation, you won't drive axial elongation. The animal studies are pretty convincing on this. Uh, accommodation's got nothing to do with it. Uh, and the clearest evidence from this is from chickens, where atropine still blocks a uh, the uh, uh, axial elongation, but in chickens, the uh, control of accommodation is via nicotinic and not muscarinic receptors. So atropine just doesn't affect accommodation. The best guess as to what's going, and it's still an unresolved issue, there are some data in the literature which suggests that uh, atropine might directly affect uh, scleral fibroblasts. There's also some data on the literature, which I, in the literature which I find more convincing, that atropine may actually act on the retina and change the growth signals that are sent to the sclera. Are there any established guidelines to identify the children who would benefit most from this therapy and to avoid treatment in those who are not at substantial risk for progression to pathological myopia? Well, I don't know that there are established uh, guidelines. I think it's possible to start putting some together. Uh, you've got to look for the uh, the known risk factors. Now, one known risk factor for uh, uh, myopia in children is uh, parental myopia. So that's a uh, one sign. Uh, but... There's no genetic test which will tell you who is at risk or who is likely uh, to uh, uh, to progress uh, to to high myopia. So at the moment, the best guide is simply to follow uh, a child. Uh, yeah, a child who turns myopic at the age of six is at high risk of going on to high myopia. A child who doesn't turn myopic until 15 is not at high risk. So there's an argument that children from high-risk families, uh, and that is families where the parents are already myopic, uh, perhaps uh, families of uh, uh, Chinese, East Asian descent, where the cultural practices in relation to myopia are um, yeah tend to generate or to, in relation to ed education tend to uh, generate myopia. 
these children should be monitored, but the real test is when do they become myopic and how, you know, how early do they become myopic and how long do they have then to progress to high myopia? These are really important studies coming out of East Asia, Southeast Asia. However, the population studied is, of course, Asians. Uh, how would the concentration studied affect children with areas of lighter color, like Europeans? Ah, well, I think that's a that's that's a very good question. Um, what you would expect from what we know about. Uh, the uh, ethnic differences in sensitivity to psychoplegics is that a given dose of atropine should uh, produce greater effects in uh, children of European origin. And so that means there may be some need for fine tuning of uh, results to, uh, or of doses in when you take the results that have been achieved in East Asia and move on to uh, try to apply it to children of European origin. But I think, yeah, I'm not aware of any study which is doing that at the moment, but I do know that people are trying to get the funding for a proper trial to sort out if there are any differences. Well, first of all, demonstrate real uh, effectiveness in children of European ancestry and then to fine-tune the dosage. Ian, there, there, are, there are a number of factors that have been identified as at least correlates with, with development of myopia, education, socioeconomic status on the, on the, on the part, part of parents, non-smoking on the part of parents. As you mentioned, my, myopia on the, on the part of parents, outdoor playtime, or at, at, at least outdoor time. And uh, even um, to some extent, month of of birth or se season of birth. Well, is is there anything that's being done from a, a public health standpoint to modify the environments of the children to uh, also try to put them to move them into lower risk groups? Yeah, uh, certainly. I think that's the uh, probably the most active area because it deals with not just control of progression in children who are already myopic. Now, that's important. I'm not dismissing it. But in countries in East Asia where you have these uh, amazingly high pre prevalences of myopia, then I really have to deal with the issue of uh, preventing the onset. Now, of all the things that have been looked at, by far the most promising is the, the, the fact that children who get outside a lot seem to be less susceptible to developing myopia. And this has actually moved on to uh, clinical trials. So we've done a clinical trial in Guangzhou. Uh, a cl clinical trial has been carried out in Taiwan. Our trial in Guangzhou, which made a compulsory additional 40 minutes a day outside at school, produced a 25% reduction in new cases of myopia. A similar trial carried out in Taiwan that gave an estimated 80 minutes a day actually produced a 
50% reduction in cases of incident myopia. So in the places which are really confronting the epidemic of myopia, this uh, seems to be a uh, yeah an approach that is worth taking. And Taiwan here is leading the way. Uh, they now have as a nationwide uh, school-based uh, myopia prevention program which aims to get children outside for a minimum of two hours a day. And that's the sort of length of time that uh, the epidemiology suggests that uh, is required to really substantially reduce the onset of myopia. And it's interesting that the timing in the two trials, so in Guangzhou, 40 minutes, 25% reduction. In Taiwan, 80 minutes, 50% reduction. Looks like a dose response curve. And it actually crosses 0% additional myopia at about the right time exposure three to four hours a day, which uh, you get from the epidemiological study. It's definitely, it's, it's been confirmed. The difficulty is uh, how to fit it into the, uh, the school day in, uh, in these countries. Uh, in Taiwan, all they did was to, uh, at school recess time, uh, get the children outside of their classrooms and then lock the doors. It's uh, it's a, something that, as an Australian, you know, where the children line up to get outside, I find very hard to understand. But in much of East Asia, many children do not go outside of their classroom at recess time, but stay in their classroom. By that simple manipulation, they were able to get, they assume, they didn't measure it, they assume the children then went outside and got 80 minutes exposure and it's certainly consistent with the sort of dose response uh, curve that we were talking about. Hard to apply, particularly in mainland China, because mainland China is not commonly known outside of China, but children have a two and a half hour lunch break. And particularly at primary school level, they uh, sleep for most of that time and therefore don't get the myopia prevention effects that they would get if they went outside. Now, does this have relevance to um, clinical practice? Uh, I, I think it does. We're talking about indicators for the use of atropine and how you try to identify uh, uh, children who are at risk and monitor them until they become myopic and then think about atropine. But what you might do in clinical practice is to say, well, a strong recommendation to those parents would be get their children outside and see if that slows down the onset of myopia, certainly seems to in practice. And uh, the more you can slow down the onset, of course, the less risk there is of moving on to high myopia. Absolutely fascinating stuff, Ian. Ian, I want to thank you very, very much for, for bringing this to us and Ian for being so very generous with your time with us. That's not a problem. 
Ian Morgan is professor at the Research School of Biology at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia, and at the Zongshang Ophthalmic Center at the Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, China. Dr. Morgan's editorial, An Important Step Forward in Myopia Prevention, Low-Dose Atropine, appears in the February 2016 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Morgan or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.